Well, do open your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We resumed our study in this book last week after the holidays and all, and we have entered a most unique portion of this letter. You know that after laying a solid foundation of truth in the past nine chapters, Paul is now firmly and directly answering his critics. As you know, this whole letter is largely a defense of Paul's ministry of the gospel. And the false apostles have snuck into the Corinthian church and they are tearing it down with one lie at a time. Now last week we read through all of chapters 10, 11, and 12 because studying this portion of the letter in its parts can be somewhat precarious. But studying it as a whole is golden. Paul uses some unexpected communication tactics throughout, so we have to be careful in how we interpret and how we apply these truths. As we mentioned last week, we don't want to get stuck in the weeds, but instead we want to focus on the bottom line, the primary lessons that Paul is trying to get across. So having read these three chapters last week, we studied chapter 10, and today we're going to look at the first 21 verses of chapter 11. You may recall from last week that we are observing both truth lessons and mistakes. Much of what Paul says in these three chapters is falling into one of these two categories. And here is our list so far from last week. First truth lesson was to maintain spiritual focus instead of making the mistake of leaning on and depending on an outward human focus. The second truth is that God calls us to build others up, not to tear them down. That's a hard truth to remember, let alone grasp, when we are being attacked by someone. But even in those moments, God calls us to build each other up in the church. The third truth is that credit belongs where credit is due instead of taking credit for what others have achieved. Ultimately, God. And the fourth truth is that God's measurement and commendation are all that matter. Self-measurement, self-commendation are of very little to no worth. In the end, what God says and what He thinks of you and me is all that matters. Now these particular truth lessons and mistakes that we read throughout these three chapters stem from Paul defending his ministry of the gospel. And why does he have to defend it? What was he accused of? There are three primary false accusations that have been made against him. Number one is that Paul is lying. You can't trust him. He writes one way and he lives another. He's a hypocrite. The second is that Paul is selfish. He's in this for personal gain. Can you see that he's taking advantage of you? And the third accusation is that Paul doesn't love you. I don't know that the accusations can go lower than that. These are very incriminating, and if they are true, then Paul indeed is unfit. He is unqualified to serve as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, if you've been falsely accused of these kinds of things, then you begin to understand the pain that Paul is going through. If you haven't, then don't worry, you will soon enough. And yet it was in this trial that God was teaching Paul some of life's most valuable lessons. These are lessons that not only have massive impact on our view and our interpretation of life, but they also have massive impact on eternity. We cannot even begin to measure the importance of these truth lessons that Paul is teaching. 
Lord, help us to learn these lessons today and going forward. So that recap, follow along as I read through 2 Corinthians chapter 11, the first 21 verses. Paul says to the Corinthian church, I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. For I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles. But even if I am unskilled in speech, yet I am not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way we have made this evident to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? I robbed other churches by taking wages for them to serve you. And when I was present with you and I was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. And in everything, I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do, but what I am doing I will continue to do so that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder. For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. Again, I say, let no one think me foolish. But if you do, receive me even as foolish, so that I also may boast a little. What I am saying, I am not saying as the Lord would, but as in foolishness, in this confidence of boasting. Since many boast according to the flesh, I will boast also. For you, being so wise, tolerate the foolish gladly. For you tolerate it if anyone enslaves you, anyone devours you, anyone takes advantage of you, anyone exalts himself, anyone hits you in the face. To my shame, I must say that we have been weak by comparison. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are strong words, and yet we know that you and your Spirit have spoken through Paul. You have guided your apostle to speak your truth in a very real application. Lord, there isn't a one of us who have not been falsely accused of things, wrongly accused, offended, and we see here examples, truth lessons 
mistakes that have been made that you have recorded in the pages of Scripture for our instruction. And so we ask, Lord, that you would give us the heart of a student, the heart of a learner. Lord, that we might learn the wisdom of God. We need you to be the one who opens our eyes, who pours truth into our lives in such a way that at the end of the day, we boast in the Lord and what he has done. Guide us now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I don't doubt that you noticed in the scripture reading there that Paul began this portion of his letter in a very unusual manner. This is very uncharacteristic of Paul. He's about to employ a teaching technique that uses foolishness to demonstrate foolishness. But be careful, he is not necessarily using it to establish truth for us to live by. There's a subtle difference there. He's using foolish lessons. And foolish lessons would be something like this. Your little son or daughter comes up to you and says, you won't let me have more ice cream. You don't even love me. And what does the dad say? You're right, I don't love you. That's why I work so hard to pay your bills, provide a good education, take you on vacation three times a year. You're right, I don't love you. Is there a parent here who hasn't used that technique yet? Surely Paul is thinking of the proverb, Proverbs 25, verse 6, which says, Answer a fool as his folly deserves, that he not be wise in his own eyes. Now, of course, the difficulty lies in the prior verse. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will also be like him. You and I must tread carefully if we choose to use some of Paul's tactics in these chapters. Again, discern between Paul's foolish lessons and his biblical exhortation for the church and therefore for us today. So verse 1 says, I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me. I think that's Paul's way of saying, you don't have a choice, keep reading. Verse 2, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. Now we see that before Paul dives into a little foolishness, he establishes and employs this very serious truth. So continuing our list from last week, here we have truth lesson number five. Protect what is God's because it's a mistake to focus on protecting self. Not that it's wrong to protect self. We don't see that in the text. There's a time and a place and there's principles for that. But the higher priority which guides the lower priority is to concern oneself first and foremost with protecting and valuing what is rightfully God's. In this case, it was Paul protecting the church. And he uses the analogy of an engaged woman. That would be the church. And her future husband, which is who? Christ. And the woman's father, which is who? That's Paul. He's the one who led them to Christ. And in, in this analogy, it's the father's high calling to protect his daughter from evil men. There's a similar moral duty, as we all know, for husbands, for them to protect their wife. Why? Because he's their husband. A wife deserves a jealous husband. 
a fierce and loving protector. And to the Corinthian church, Paul says, I'm not just going to let someone come into this church and steal you from Christ. Paul, like a good father, is determined to do his utmost to protect what is God's, in this case, the church. But notice how he puts some responsibility on the church. In verse 3, he says, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. That is such an awesome verse. Just in reading it, we sense the profound wisdom that is packed into these couple phrases. Mistake number six, be deceived by what I like to call false truths. Those are words that appear to be true, but are not. And Paul has a very astute understanding of the big picture and what's really going on in Corinth. He says this problem that you've got of being led astray goes all the way back to the garden. Satan is still at it. Warren Wiersbe in his commentary on this text notes that when Satan approached Eve, he questioned God's word, then he denied God's word, and then he substituted it. That's how you lead someone astray. And where does a major portion of the deception leading take place? The verse says, in your mind. But I am afraid that your minds will be led astray. Christian friends, could the demand for biblical knowledge be clearer? I am reminded all throughout these chapters that every one of us must be a diligent student of the Word. Don't let the pastor or the Sunday school teacher or the Bible study leader do all the studying and thinking and answering for you. Why? Because even they can deceive. Now, not in this church, of course, but always be careful. What was it that Paul was afraid the believers would be led away from? The simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. That is what I like to think of as one of the north stars in Scripture. There are certain verses that give massive Christian life direction. They quickly and they accurately tell us if we are on track. They clearly point the direction our entire life should be headed. This is one of those verses. Truth lesson number six. Maintain simple and pure devotion to Christ. Now, this simplicity word speaks not to, to primarily to a, a logical simplicity, but rather to a moral simplicity. The Greek word, which is haplotes, is the same word used for sincere in some of your Bible, Bibles. It refers to singleness, one only. Thayer's Bible Dictionary defines it in this way, the virtue of one who is free from pretense and hypocrisy. Paul could see that these young believers were losing their moral focus and wisdom. They were losing their moral singleness. Something was changing. They weren't being real. 
They were pretending to some degree or another. It's worth asking ourselves, is the image of piety and reverence and holiness that I want others to see in me actually who I am? Is it who I am becoming? Since none of us have arrived, we know this, we're all growing, we all have work to do. Secondly, Paul says that these young believers' devotion to Christ was losing its purity. It was being tainted. It was being split. It was being shared with someone else. This goes right back to the purity of the virgin bride analogy. And we know that devotion to Christ begins to lose its purity when it is shared with anyone else or anything else. These young believers were beginning to devote themselves to other teachers and teachings, other values. Perhaps they were devoting themselves to some degree or another to themselves, to self. And that doesn't happen overnight. Paul cautions, and surely he uses the word carefully, he cautions that we not be led astray one step at a time, often without force and without fight, as the sheep is led where? To the slaughter. Few people run or jump from Christ. The deception happens one step, one thought, one decision at a time. And it's a step that is defined here by hypocrisy, a lack of sincerity and singleness, as well as a weakening of the devotion to Christ. When I see someone, someone throwing away their faith, my fear is not so much that they are attracted to the world. It is that they are unattracted to Christ. My fear is not so much that they are grabbing hold of the things of the world so much as it is that they are releasing their grip on the things of Christ. No wonder the writer of Hebrews said in 10.23, Let us hold fast the profession of our hope without wavering, for he, is, he who promised is faithful. How do we protect ourselves and how do we protect the church from being led astray? Maintain simple and pure devotion to Christ. You and I and we as a church family must be marked by our devotion to Christ. If we have a testimony in this community, let it be that that church family is devoted to the one they call God. Sadly, many people say, I'm a Christian, not realizing what they're saying is, I am a follower of Christ. But they have very little idea of who He is, let alone where He is going and leading them. Christ is not who we think He is. He is who He says He is. And we all know that we only find that truth through the Spirit in the Word. And Corinth was failing this discernment test. Verse 4, this is where the deception is further defined. He says, for if one comes and preaches another Jesus, do you see the deception there? They don't come preaching Satan, do they? It's another Jesus. It's a variation of Him whom we have not preached. And how do you and I know what was preached 
if we aren't meticulous with the Word of God. He goes on to say, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received. It's easy to preach and receive a different spirit because you can't see it with your eyes, right? No wonder back in chapter 4, Paul exhorted the church to have 20-20 spiritual vision. He goes on to say, or if you receive a different gospel which you have not accepted, meaning which was not given to you from us, from Christ. If you receive a different gospel, again, how can you and I possibly spot a variation of the gospel, a variation of how to follow Christ if we aren't well informed of the specific details laid out in the Word of God? And how does Paul say the believers were dealing with such false issues in the church? He says, you bear this beautifully. That's Paul foolishly saying, your reception of false teaching is just lovely. You're accepting it with welcome arms. You welcome it with a smile. More on that in a minute. Verse 5, for I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles. So there Paul is directly answering the overarching claim that his critics are making that they are better than him. Look where Paul takes this in verse 6. But even if I am unskilled in speech, yet I am not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way we have made this evident to you in all things. Truth lesson number 7. Skillfully know the whole truth. This was part of Paul's greatest defense. Skillfully know the whole truth. Why? Because it is a mistake to misuse limited knowledge. I mean, these are life principles. These are things that are abundantly clear, both to the believer and the non-believer. Paul mentions skillful knowledge in all things. So follow the logic there. Too often Christians have knowledge, but don't know how to skillfully use it. Or they don't have much knowledge, but they think they can somehow skillfully use it. There are few things in life as dangerous as ignorance wielded. And Paul points out that even if, and that's a big if, even if he is unskillful in his oratory capabilities, he was not unskillful in his knowledge of Christ. This again teaches us that what a person communicates is of far greater value and importance than how they communicate it. Lies can be told beautifully. Better to hear an ugly truth. And of course, this is not to put down the diligent development of one's communication skills. I'm sure there are a number of you here who have a degree in communication. You understand the importance of personal growth in the highly influential area of how we speak, how we use our words. I'll let you in on a little secret. For about the first five years of my preaching here at Discovery, I watched nearly every single video of all my sermons. And yes, it was painful. But I did it because I need to know how I'm coming across. I need to identify nervous twitches. I need to hear tonal and speed changes. I need to evaluate my mannerisms. Why? Because I don't want my speaking to distract from the message. I want everything to propel and to amplify the message. My goodness, if I'm distracted or bored listening to my own sermon, so are they. But all of this speech evaluation 
in communication, development, etc., takes a distant second place to content. Matter of fact, I've found very much so that when it comes to the Word of God, content fuels passionate communication. And Paul was a master of divine content. He knew that he was skilled and he was equipped. He knew how to rightly divide it, how to accurately handle it. And by the way, there is no reason to believe that he was a poor public speaker. Not when we read his epistles in the accounts of his speeches in the book of Acts. Paul was being humble here. But even in his humility, he directed these young believers to recognize the greater importance of content, specifically the knowledge of the Word of God. Now, I may not have mentioned this yet today, but every Christian has a tremendous responsibility to faithfully study the Word, to be growing in our knowledge of exactly what the Bible says and teaches. That is the only way we can identify good content from the pulpit or from any other teacher or from a book or a podcast or a friend and so on. And we learn from this verse in particular that we have an obligation not to just be knowledgeable, but to be knowledgeable in what? In all things. This calls for well-rounded biblical study, well-rounded application. Hear me on this. It is, it, it is dangerous to master sovereignty without mastering responsibility. And woe to the Christian who even thinks they have mastered sovereignty, right? It's dangerous to master obedience apart from grace. Love apart from justice. The New Testament apart from the old. You, you understand the lesson here. Even if I am unskilled in speech, yet I am not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way, we have made this evident to you in all things. Let that be one of our humble aspirations in this life. To know all of God's Word as well as we can for all of life. Not just in the areas that we think are important. Verse 7, here we see the, again the core accusation that Paul is selfish. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? I robbed other churches by taking wages of them to serve you. There's some of his foolish language again. He was accused of robbing the church, of taking advantage of them, burdening them. And here he sarcastically says, I didn't rob you. The only people I quote-unquote robbed were the other churches, and I did it so that I could, that, so that I could serve you. Verse 9, and when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, up north, they fully supplied my need, and in everything I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. That is the province in which Corinth was. Now we won't dwell on this situation, but it is interesting to note that Paul accepted offerings and missionary support from the other churches, but not from Corinth. Now, we don't have a whole lot of detail on the situation, but this much we easily deduce. Paul was willing to sacrifice anything to effectively minister the gospel. For some reason, he knew that to accept money from these young believers would hinder the message of Christ. 
Perhaps they were suspicious of him because of the financial distrust that was inbred all throughout the mega city of Corinth. And so he refused money, even though, as he taught in other writings, a servant of God deserves his wages. It was the responsibility of the church to provide and to support that individual. But whatever the case, Paul was willing to sacrifice anything, even his well-deserved salary, in order to present the gospel effectively. This goes back to 1 Corinthians 8 and 9, where Paul deals with what in chapter 8? Not eating meat offered idols. Meat purchased in the temple stores, you could say. Not eating it if it genuinely destroys the faith of an immature believer. But then he goes way bigger in chapter 9 on the heart of the matter of sacrificing anything. He begins chapter 9 with these rhetorical questions to who? The Corinthian believers. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Note, these charges, these accusations are not new in this church. Paul has been dealing with this for some time. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of our Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? That would be his tent trade. Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends to a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? So why was Paul willing to put all of these things on the line? Verse 19, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all. Why? So that I may win more. Oh, that God would impress those words on the front of our minds and hearts. Lord, how can I win more? In the right spirit, Lord, last year was not enough. What about this year? He goes on to say, I have become all things to all men. Why? So that I might by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Paul understood something magnificent. The joy of partaking of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the lives of others. Here's the irony of this situation. Paul refused money from this church. And the false prophets turned around and accused him of being cheap. In a sense, they're saying if he was the real thing, he would earn more than that. He'd be worth more than that. You know, sometimes no matter what you do and no matter what you say, it will be used against you. What was Paul's response? Nothing is going to stop me. you got to love that. He says, as the truth of Christ is in me, 
this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. He's ju he just continued serving and giving. When we know that God has called us to do something and we know it's the right thing, sometimes the best response is what? Just keep on doing it. Verse 11, why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. Again, there is perhaps the most cutting accusation that Paul had to address, that he doesn't even love the church. Verse 12, but what I am doing, I will continue to do so that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. Paul's made it very clear already, and he'll continue to do so, that he was not concerned about people going around and claiming to be better apostles than him. He was not concerned about putting, people putting him down. He was concerned for the church, the bride of Christ. And he was fulfilling his duty, his moral, spiritual responsibility to protect them and defend the truth, which is their only hope of life. Verse 13, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. Truth lesson number eight, watch out for false teachers. There is only one way you and I can identify a lie, and that is to know the truth. In case you forgot it when I mentioned last Sunday, we must study the Word of God. If a church family is not studious and knowledgeable in the whole Scripture, one of the greatest potentials for danger lies in the pulpit. Because what comes from there, what comes from the teachers of the church, the leaders of the Bible studies, is usually readily accepted as truth. It's considered to be a safe zone, etc. And yet Paul describes the sermons, quote-unquote, in Corinth three ways. False, deceitful, and disguised. Giving the appearance of light. These teachers were actually servants of Satan, he called them. Now let's pause for a moment. We have got to address something real quick. These three chapters are dangerous when it comes to application. Because if we misunderstand the text, we will almost certainly do what? Misapply the text. So let's look at it this way. Just because Paul used sarcasm, should we? What about just because Paul gave a long list of his accomplishments to prove his credentials, should we? Just because Paul fought back with strong words, should we? Just because Paul used very harsh language at times, should we? Just because, because Paul refused financial support, should our missionaries Mark and I do so also? Just because Paul called his opponents servants of Satan, is that what we should post on Facebook or Instagram or email to all our friends? If I were a betting man, and I'm not, but if I were, I'd bet you that every one of those questions has been answered as a yes many times over and put into practice by people who call themselves Christians, much to the disgrace of the name of Christ. Here are three interpretation application principles worth using here in this, these verses in particular. Number one, identify narrative and even teaching versus 
direct command. Oftentimes in Scripture, the Bible doesn't tell us to do what the character in the story did. It just says he or she did it. Just because David used a sling doesn't mean we should. Just because Jesus rode a donkey doesn't mean we should. Just because Paul used sarcasm doesn't necessarily mean we should. And I'm not saying he was wrong. I'm saying it's not a license or a command for us. This pulls us into the second principle. Situationally compare apples to apples. If you've got someone falsely accusing you right now, if you've got an issue you're dealing with, or you deal with in the near future, make sure that your situation is exactly like Paul's before you choose and use the exact same tactics he did. For example, are you an apostle? Then think twice before acting like an apostle. Is the person you're at odds with destroying the church and massively undermining the gospel? Probably not. In most situations, that's not even close to the situation. On the other hand, if false teachers come into the church and begin to destroy it with lies that come straight from hell, then these chapters are very likely model behavior for us to follow, at least in principle and strategy. That leads me to our third study and application principle. Look for the wisdom being employed, that is, versus the actual word or action. And that's our goal in the list that we're compiling as we work our way through these three chapters over these three weeks. What is the wisdom or truth being demonstrated in the situation? That's what we want. What are the heart level, the thought level, general mistakes that are being made? Those are what we want to avoid. Because these truths and, and these mistakes apply to believers for all time. Okay, so back to the servants of Satan in verse 15. What's the heart of the matter here? There are self-seeking people who do and will rise to leadership in the church. And they will present a false Jesus, a false spirit, and a false gospel. We had better be ready to accurately identify and adamantly oppose them. Verse 16. Again, I say, let no one think me foolish, but if you do, receive me even as foolish, so that I also may boast a little. What I am saying, I am not saying as the Lord would, but as in foolishness, in this confidence of boasting. That's Paul's way of saying, caution, most of what you are about to hear is not biblical exhortation. It is foolishness. Verse 18, since many boast according to the flesh, I will boast also. For you, being so wise... Tolerate the foolish gladly. For you tolerate it. If anyone enslaves you, anyone devours you, anyone takes advantage of you, anyone exalts himself, anyone hits you in the face, to my shame, I must say that we have been weak by comparison. Here's our final truth point for today. Or, I'm sorry, our final mistake. Mistake number eight. Eagerly tolerate foolish abuse. Not only is the message coming from the Corinthian pulpit false, deceitful, and disguised, it is resulting in the people being enslaved, devoured, and taken advantage of. The teachers are exalting themselves, and the people are even physically being abused. Now, even if the abuse isn't physical, surely it's verbal 
abuse is happening. Even if it's not physical, surely verbal abuse is happening in the church. We phrase it this way in the 21st century. That was a slap in the face. We're talking about insulting, degrading language. And here's what's so staggering about this sad situation in Corinth. Verse 19, the believers willingly, they gladly tolerate such spiritual abuse. Try explaining that one. You do understand that that happens today. Allow me to offer just one explanation. There are several explanations, several factors at play here. But here's one that we find to be at the heart of this matter. The false teachers offered what the people really wanted. Self-gratification. Paul pointed out the pride, the self-exaltation, the greed, the fame that these false teachers were after. And just like we see down through the ages up to today, they used the mask of religion to offer the same to their followers. The Corinthians were plagued, as Paul is going to lay out in the next couple chapters. They were plagued with arguing, with disputes, with strife, with the, the, the forcing of personal liberties. They were guilty of gross immorality. They were giving in to the flesh. Here's an important lesson for us. If we don't want those worldly things, we won't be attracted to them. We won't be so easily deceived by them. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, the apostle warned, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. Do you think there was any temptation in a booming city like Corinth? Known for its athleticism and games? Known for its economic prosperity? Its abundance and tolerance of all religions? and even famed for its gross immorality. John said, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. I'm not so sure if chapters 10, 11, and 12 are more a rebuke of the false teachers or the church who wanted what they had to offer. Either way, we find these chapters to be a strong, profound, and wonderful caution and exhortation and protection for the church and their faith. May God give us the grace to learn from His Word in these hard-to-understand chapters so that we might put these truths into practice in our own lives and in our own church family. As Mark mentioned, next week Tim Franklin is going to come and he's going to minister the Word to us. Can't wait for that Sunday. The following Sunday, we'll look at the rest of chapter 11 and the first 10 verses of chapter 12. As best I can tell, those verses are going to be the bullseye of this entire 22-lesson series. And God has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. 
Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, that, that's in faith. Lord, that's humbly what we want. We shudder at the thought of asking you to teach us those lessons. But Lord, we humbly ask, teach us what it means to boast in our own weakness so that the power of Christ will rest on us, in us, through us. It's laughable to think that we can do a better job than God at finding divine wisdom, applying it to our lives, and sharing it with others. Lord, we, we want you to do the work of Christ in and through us. Give us wisdom in these matters of knowing how to be falsely accused. Lord, give us these wisdom in these matters of knowing how not to go about defending ourselves, but to go about defending the gospel, to go about defending those who belong to Christ, to go about defending those who will belong to Christ. Lord, our heart's prayer is that you will use us to save more. Lord, teach us to let go of the things that do temporarily gratify self so that we might lay hold of the things that bear fruit for all of eternity. That indeed is true treasure. Lord, help us heart, our hearts to love the things that God loves, the people that God loves, and the truth that is God. Thank you for this day. We bless you in it, in Jesus' name, amen.